0: Okay, uh, good evening, brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, welcome to another episode of Bible Questions and Answers. Now, what we're going to be answering uh, for our episode this evening, we will begin with number one, uh, ask, answer the question concerning the administration of the church, church leadership. Next, we're going to look into the allegation that the Bible is a mythical book or a book of fiction because it patterns after many of so-called folklore and other secular books concerning the lifespan of people before the deluge or the universal flood. And then we'll go into the life of Job, several questions about Job and his life. But before we go ahead and answer those questions, we want to ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Everlasting Father. Yes, Thank you so much, gracious God, for your blessings. Yes, Father. Yehovah Almighty, you are compassionate, yes, patient, and long suffering. Yes. Father. Because of you, we are here. Yes. Despite God. our imperfections, because of your love for each and every one of us, yes, we stand before you now. Amen. Father, accept, please, our praise and our thanks. Yes, Father. And may you help us that we may glorify you tonight. Amen. Please continue to work in our life. By means of the power of your spirit. Yahushua, our King, thank you as well. Because we belong to you. We are your servants. We belong to you as our King and Master. May you help and guide us in our journey in this life. That we can be instruments of righteousness. Proclaiming your precious name, Yahushua. And the name of our Father Yahuwah, yes. that many people can be embraced by salvation. Amen. Father, please guide us with your Spirit today yes. as we study your holy book. We ask and beg everything, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Praise be to our loving Father that we're gathered once again to study his book. So we have several questions on our agenda for tonight but before we go to the first one we just want to make sure that if ever you have any questions of any kind please let us know what they are you can send us an email at info at assemblyofyahusha.org so that we can use your questions and to the best of our ability um, give you biblical answers of course, we cannot possibly answer all of your questions in one episode, so please be uh, be patient. Bear with us. We will get to your question, uh, sure enough. So let's go to the very first question, and it's, it's a pretty long question, and it perfectly captures the sentiment of many people today who belong to a religion, and they feel trapped in that religion because for such a long, long time they have been taught certain doctrines, certain beliefs, and so they believe that by leaving that group, they're going to go to hell. And so there's a lot of fear involved. And so this person who gave this question, of course, wants to remain anonymous. Uh, We disclose certain things that may probably uh, disclose uh, the the institution where he or she has come from. But let's go ahead and look at the question that this person is asking. I I am living in constant fear and mostly because of my reverent fear in our Almighty God. I don't know if I'm constantly committing sin in his eyes. For example, there are many things inside that I am not used to seeing or hearing, such as several expulsions of members, businesses, leaders getting involved with politics, prayers, treatment for is almost like he is being idolized. Worship service lessons are constantly about offering I am in constant fear that I am committing a sin to our Almighty God because I don't agree with these things happening. But what if these are the will of God? We are always being reminded that the administration is who God called and placed, and so I feel I am sinful for not being able to accept the decisions of our administration. I also feel I am committing a sin because I'm listening to you as we are constantly being reminded to stay away from those expelled. I don't know what is right or wrong anymore. I wish I can talk to our ministers about these feelings I have, but I believe there are repercussions of a possibility of expulsion as asking questions or questioning decisions of the administration can be considered rebelling against them. So it has a lot of content in there and One of the first things I want to highlight is what he or she said, I am living in constant fear. That's no way to live our life, to live in fear, and that is not what God intends for our life. We were called by God to be his sons and daughters, not so that uh, fear will reign in our life, but so that we will have peace and joy when it comes to worshiping and serving him. So there is a difference between fear of God and living in fear. It's good that we have fear of God, but it doesn't mean we live in fear. So what is the fear of God? If we truly have reverence or fear of God, what will that cause us to do? In the book of Proverbs 8:13, all who fear Yahuwah, who is our God, will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption, and perverse speech. And so if one truly fears Yahuwah, our God, he will distance himself from anything that is evil, anything that promotes pride and arrogance, corruption, and perverse speech. And so if one belongs in the company of or in the fellowship of any group or any group of people who promote these things that God hates, and of course that person is not fearing Yahuwah our God. So to fear God is to hate what God hates. And so we should not live in fear by making sure we distance ourselves from those things that God hates. And so what else must we do so that we will not be living in fear? Because it's a sad life when you live in fear, right? And so this is what the Apostle John teaches in 1 John 4, 16 to 21. And we ourselves know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love and those who live in love Live in union with God, and God lives in union with them. Love is made perfect in us in order that we may have courage on the judgment day. And we will have it because our life in this world is the same as Christ's. There is no fear. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. So then love has not been made perfect in anyone who is afraid because fear has to do with punishment. We love God because lo- we love. We because God l- first loved us. If we say we love God but hate others, we are liars. For we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love others whom we have seen. The command that Christ has given us is this, whoever loves God must love others also. So how can we escape this sense of fear when we live out our life? When we live in union with God and God lives in union with us. And so when we have God living in union with us, that fear will naturally dissipate. So when a person lives in fear, it only means one thing. He is not living with God. God is not living with them. Well, how can we make sure that God is in union with us and we in union with God? The Bible says it is by means of the practice of love. This is why the scripture says in verse 21, the command that Christ has given us is this, whoever loves God must love others also. And so when a person is driven to hate others, he or she cannot have the love of God. And so because of that lack of love for God, And that lack of love that comes from God, that person will fear, will feel fear. What will drive away fear? The Bible says that perfect love drives out all fear. And so if a person is still living in fear, it is because he has not yet embraced the love of God and has given that love of God that he received to people people this is why if there's any religious organization that promotes hatred of any kind that organization is not of god and if i were you i would leave that fellowship right away however that's that judgment that decision is entirely up to you we can only tell you what the bible says the bible clearly says any church any fellowship that promotes the things god hates that fellowship is not of God. So when we look at this person's questions, what are some of the things that he or she sees in his or her church? Well, he mentions businesses, leaders getting involved with politics, uh, people being idolized, they pray for him and worship him, right? Constantly about offering. Well, if that's the case, And we ask ourselves, what are the things that God hates? According to scriptures, if we truly fear Yahuwah God, we are to distance ourselves from the things that God hates. And when we look at his or her question, it even says he is afraid that he or she is committing sin because he or she is thinking that by questioning an administration, is committing a sin before God. If You look at the highlighted part there. We are always being reminded that the administration is who God called and placed. And so I feel I am sinful for not being able to accept the decisions of our administration. So in God's people, within God's people, God chooses an administration. Do you believe that? Is it true that God places an administration inside the church? What do you think? Is that true or false? Yes, that's true in the book of Corinthians 12, 11, 28. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that miracles, then gifts of healings helps administrations, varieties of tongues. Is it true that God appoints the administration in the body or in the church of Yahushua? Yes, the administration was placed by God. However, the administration was not the only thing placed by God. It's just one of the gifts that God gives to the people who belong to the church. Do you see that? Apostle Paul is speaking about the body. In the body, there are various parts. Are we included in the body as one of the parts of the body of Yahusha? What is your answer? Yes, Yes, all of us are equally and individually parts of the one body of Yahusha. It's not just the administration. Yes, God placed the administration, but God also placed the members the same God who placed the administration placed the members. And where does God place the members? According to his will. Some to teach. Some to have the gift or to do the work of helping. Some the work of healing. Some to do the work of miracle, Some to do the work of administrating or leader leadership. Because their gift is the gift of direction or leadership within the organization however it doesn't mean that if you have been given the gift of administration that you are the head of the organization do you see that who remains the head of the body it's not the administration who is it it is yahusha god placed him as head the administration together with the other members are parts of the one body of Yahushua because of this Those who are leading, for example, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the church, because there are individuals who have the gift of teaching, the gift of administrating, the gift of healing, perhaps, and so they become specialized leaders inside the church. What are they called? The book of 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, to the elders among you. I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you were willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And so according to Apostle Peter, Who is an elder. What is the purpose of church leadership? It is not to rule, not to lord, not to act as kings over the members of the church. Instead, they are to serve as overseers. What does that mean? They are to shepherd the flock of God under their care. How so? Not as lords, but by being good examples to the flock. Why? Because they themselves will answer to the chief shepherd. Who is the chief shepherd? The executive minister? No, the chief shepherd is Yahusha HaMashiach. This is why the administration that was placed by God is also part of the body of Yahusha and not the head of the body. They have no more authority or power over the other members of the church because they themselves are parts of the body of Yahusha. And so what is our responsibility as people of God who belong to the church or assembly as we are being led by spiritual leaders? Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. But test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Yes, God has placed an administration. Yes, God has placed elders and spiritual leaders. What is the purpose of God in placing them inside the church? It is to give us spiritual guidance. And how must we treat them? The Bible says, with great respect and wholehearted love. Is this what we need to practice at all times? Absolutely. But does it mean that if we give our spiritual leaders wholehearted love and great respect, that we will accept everything that they tell us to do? No. No. Because Apostle Paul says, we must test everything that is said. Why? Because even elders commit sin. Even elders make mistakes. Who's the only one who cannot make mistakes? Yahusha, our king. So unless Yahusha is directly speaking to you, we must believe that every instrument, every person who leads us, they are human beings, and so they will. They, can, they could commit mistakes. So it is our responsibility to test everything that is said. Well, how do we do that? How do we test everything that is said? Corinthians 14, 29 to 31. Two or three who were given God's message should speak, while the others are to judge what they say. But if someone sitting in the meeting receives a message from God, The one who is speaking should stop. All of you may proclaim God's message one by one so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. How can we properly test our spiritual leaders? Bible says during a service, whenever these the message of God is being presented, being proclaimed or preached, those who are listening, the people who belong to the kahal, the assembly. The church, the people who are listening to this message, what is our responsibility? To accept everything they say? No. The Bible says we have to judge what they say. Why are we given the authority to judge what they say? Because all of us are able to receive the message of God. Remember, God uses everyone. Not just two or three people, but everyone who is inside the body of Yahushua. So we are to judge what other people say to make sure that we are not being led astray. Well, what's the best way to judge what our spiritual leaders are saying? So if someone is, for example, proclaiming to us, maybe it's me. I'm teaching you about the word of God. We have a lesson plan and we present to you ideas one after the other. Bible says you have to test me you have to judge what I say when we judge what people are saying or proclaiming what must we use the book of Acts 17 10 to 12 that very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea when they arrived there they went to the Jewish synagogue and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica and they listened eagerly to Paul's message they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believe, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. How can we properly judge those who are speaking from the pulpit, preaching the word of God? Bible says, first of all, we have to be open-minded. Let's listen to what they have to say because nowadays there are those who are saying, well, it was not taught by this person. Therefore, I will not have an audience with this guy. This was never taught by brother this or brother that who who died long ago, and so I don't want to have anything to do with that. Bible says we need to have an open mind. Why? Because the Bible is dynamic. The work of God is progressive. It's not static. In other words, As we draw closer and closer to the end of the world, God reveals his intended message that we must comply to so that we can reach that perfection. So we need to be open-minded. God is alive. God is not dead. God continues to send his spirit. He has not ceased from doing that. We need to be open to the work of the Spirit as the Word of God is preached. However, when we are receiving with an open mind any message that is presented to us, what must we do all the time? Like the Bereans, what do they do? They searched the Scriptures day after day to see if what Paul, what Silas were teaching is the truth. Because what Paul and Silas, what they were teaching was different. From what the Jewish people were used to, what they were teaching was about the Messiah. And so this was something they've never heard of. And so the Bible says, if that's the case, you have to search scriptures to see whether or not the one preaching is indeed preaching the truth. This is why all of us who are members of the church, the assembly, do you know what our responsibility is? And unfortunately, not many people want to fulfill this responsibility. Brethren, we're going to struggle with knowing the difference between right and wrong if we will not do this. The people, there's a lot of people who ask questions, and they're questioning certain things. And they feel guilty sometimes because they're questioning the leadership or the administration. And the reason why is because of this. They're lacking this. What is that? Hebrews 5, 11 and 14. There is much more we would like to say about this. But it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You see, when a person's spiritually dull, it's going to be very difficult for him or for her to be able to know the difference between right and wrong. And people, usually what they want, what they prefer, is for other people to tell them what to believe, right? It's easier that way, don't you think? Just tell me what I need to believe. Apostle Paul says, you're going to be spiritually dull if you're going to be like that. That's not That's not. what Apostle Paul wants. That's not what God wants. What does God want? He wants us to be spiritually sharp. How do we do that? Verse 12, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. And so what is God's purpose for why he called us inside the assembly? It is so that we will grow in knowledge about the teachings of God. Why? Because as we get older, Inside the assembly. What does God want us to become? Teachers. Mature. Mature. Capable of teaching the words of God. And so what do we need to do constantly? Train ourselves in scripture to know the difference between right and wrong. So instead of relying on someone else. To keep telling us what we need to believe and not believe. The shortcut, the easy way. What God wants is for us to study the word of God. It is unfortunate. There are some religions today. I don't know why. But they make you feel guilty for reading the Bible. Right? It's like you watch a movie that's rated X or rated R. It's okay. But then you read the Bible, oh you're reading the Bible on your own? You're reading the Bible? Oh boy, that's a sin. <laughs> Have you do you know people like that? Right? It's like it's like a big sin if you read the Bible on your own. Brethren, Apostle Paul wants us to read the Bible on our own, to study the words of God so that we can train ourselves in knowing the difference between right and Wrong, And so when we have spiritual leaders who are gifted, because there are those who are gifted at teaching, and they can help us understand, when we have gifted preachers and teachers who help us in our spiritual walk, what, however, must we keep in mind at all times? Hebrews 13, 17, 15, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. The work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy, not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. Therefore, let us offer through Yahushua a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. The Bible says, yes, God plays spiritual leaders. Yes, they teach us the words of God. Yes, we have a responsibility to obey what they say. However, our allegiance must be to who? Yeah." It must be to Yahusha our king, not to the spiritual leaders, the elders who guide us. They're there not to teach themselves, but to teach Yahusha. And so if what they teach counters what Yahusha HaMashiach wants us to do, then we have to, if I were you, I would disfellowship myself from this group. For example, how what is loyalty, and allegiance in the name of Yahushua. When is it time to leave a fellowship or a group? Let's read what it says in the book of 1 John 4. My dear friends, do not believe all who claim to have the spirit, but test them to find out if the spirit they have comes from God. For many false prophets have gone out everywhere, but we belong to God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever does not belong to God does not listen to us. This then is how we can tell the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Whoever loves is a child of God and knows God. If we say we love God but hate others, we are liars. For we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love others whom we have seen. The command that Christ has given us is this. Whoever loves God must love others Also, This is why if one belongs to a religion or any organization that promotes hate, when they tell you to hate other people, for example, maybe they have been expelled from your group and they tell you to treat this person in a different way, do not talk to them, do not fellowship with them anymore, that is not acting out of love, that is acting out of hate. That is no longer in allegiance to Yahusha. That's no longer the name of Yahusha. Because if we are to look at what Yahusha, our king, is all about, it's about love, right? He even said that you are to love even those who hate you and despise you. This is why for this brother or sister who is complaining about his or her religion, if you are being bothered this much, my advice would be leave, right? Whichever religion or church you are coming from that is making you feel that way, that's no longer of God. Because what we need to practice is what God wants. And especially if they make you, if this is what you feel, the reason why you're feeling afraid is the highlighted part at the bottom. I wish I can talk to our ministers about these feelings I have But I believe there are repercussions of a possibility of expulsion as asking questions or questioning decisions of the administration can be considered rebelling against them. That's a sure sign that that religion is no longer of God. Why? Because if they have leaders like that, if they will expel you because you're asking questions, then they are taking on the leadership style of a Pharisee, a ruler, a king. No, that is not the role of the administration. The role is to edify, to strengthen, to promote love. And so this church, whatever church that may be, that is not of God. Leave that place immediately if you truly fear Yahuwah our God, okay? And he even goes on. This person goes on and asks another question. I feel anger sometimes, sometimes shock, because of how head deacons, minister, constantly pray for this person. They have a person that they really idolize. They say things such as, he will present us to you, God, on the day of judgment. I'm not certain I heard it correctly, but if I heard it correctly, I thought Christ will be the one to present us. Christ, after all, is the head of our church. That's a good question. Who will present us to God? Is it going to be a certain leader here on earth? I don't think so. In the book of Ephesians 5:25, 27 husbands Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. He did this to dedicate the church to God by his word, after making it clean by washing it with water, in order to present the church to himself with all its beauty, pure and faultless, without spot or wrinkle or any other imperfection. Who will present the church to Christ? Christ will present it to himself. (laughs) And dedicate it to who? Our almighty God, And so if there's any religion or any church or any fellowship that claims that somebody here on earth will be the one to bring the church to God, then that person is now becoming a substitute for who? For Christ, for Yahushua. That would mean that would be an antichrist, would it not? That's not our belief. That's not the belief of the apostles. It is Christ who will bring the church to himself and dedicate the church to God. And so the one thing we want to, for you to understand, brethren, so that we will not be confused because there are some religious groups today who want to always substitute Christ with someone else. And so I'm going to show you a passage of scripture and I'm going to ask you a question afterwards. Because this is the work of God. John 6.29, Yahusha answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God to believe in him whom he sent. And here's my question to you, those who are watching. Who is that him that we need to believe who is sent by God? Because how you answer that question will probably determine What kind of decision you're going to make? But for me, the Him who is mentioned there, who was sent that we must believe in because it is the work of God. That is Yahushua. No one else. No one else. If there are those who will say to you, it's someone else. (laughs) That is not of Christ. That is not the work of God. Okay? All right, let's go to another question. There are many mythical stories from ancient civilizations that speak about the flood. That's true. Many of these stories were written before the Bible. That's true. An example is the Sumerian king list, which depict kings with very long lifespans before a flood. Doesn't this prove that the Bible is just a book of myths and that the long lifespans of people during the ancient world was just borrowed from mythological sources? It's a good question. Because nowadays, there are people who are questioning whether or not the Bible is really an inspired book coming from God, because there are those who say, well, the Bible is a nice book, but it's just a man-made book like everything else. It's inspiring, yes, but a lot of it, a lot of stories, especially in the Old Testament, they're really allegory. They're not real true. They're not real history. It's not a historical book. And so it should not be understood as a historical document or historical book. And one of the things that this person is asking is called what is called the Sumerian King List. And the Sumerian King List is a discovery about a story concerning the flood. And so the story about the flood is there. And before the flood, there are these kings, there are these people who live thousands of years and after the flood it was no longer thousands of years. So it's very similar to the Genesis account of Noah's flood. Does this mean however that the Bible is no longer speaking the truth that it's only mythology? In actuality brethren I don't know if you know this but archaeologists have discovered over 250 different flood legends stories from 250 different ancient cultures. And these cultures lived independently of one another. And back then there was no internet, right? They could not exchange stories with one another. They could not exchange um, information with one another because there was no means to do that other than traveling long distance, right? And so we have these different legends different myths, different books, and they all speak about a flood. As a matter of fact, when you look at these different stories, these flood traditions, there are so many, and they all have different elements of the story concerning Noah's flood. Now, if you are a thinking person, and you come to see that all these myths and legends exist, what does that tell you? there was an actual flood right there was an actual event because myths oftentimes are based on actual events it's just been embellished because of the oral tradition of storytelling when you pass on from one generation to the next the story that was for what that was being told and so when people come up with these arguments that these different stories, different myths prove that the Bible is a myth. No, it actually proves that the Bible story actually took place. It is historical because it's backed up by extra biblical content, which are these legends, one of which is the ancient king list, the Sumerian king list. And this is how it looks like when it was discovered. The Sumerian king list is an ancient listing of the first kings of Sumer and related dynasties. The list is preserved in varying forms on several different ancient tablets dating back as far as 2000 BC. Perhaps the most famous is Weld's Blundell. And So what it basically tells us, it, there's a story of kings before the flood and there's something else very interesting about the Sumerian king list. The lifespans given for the pre-flood rulers are immensely longer than those who live after the flood. And so just like the story in the flood, right? Before the flood took place, what was their, what was their, what was their lifespan? Nine hundred, almost a thousand years old, right? And so, in the Sumerian king list, it is something similar, but it's of course there's also a different aspect to it. Actually, if you keep reading, the numbers of years given in the Sumerian list of each of the antediluvian rulers is immense. The youngest ruled for only eighteen thousand six hundred years. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot longer than the one in the Bible. The oldest for a whopping 43,000 years. Wow. So while the general antediluvian features of the Sumerian king list parallels the Bible story, eight to ten generations living to immense ages before a great flood came and destroyed everything, the fact that the list's early lifespans are so long is completely irreconcilable with the biblical account. So the theme, the same, right? Long ages before the flood. After the flood, back to normalcy. And so, but the numbers doesn't match what the Bible says. There are many, many legends. This is not the only one. The Sumerian king list is not the only one. There's more than 250, like what we showed you. And of all the 250, the most complete and the most naturalistic in a sense it conforms with science is the bible's account it's the most complete and it's the most science based why do we say that let's look for example at the genealogy before the flood the ages of people before they die their lifespans right in genesis 5 6 to 32 Look at the ages when they died, 900, 900, 912, 905, 910, 895, 962, 969. They're pretty old, right? That's remarkable. How many would like to live that long? That would be a nice age, right? So during that uh, time period, well, people lived a long time. However, if we keep reading the Bible, right, for example, after the flood, for example, this is a, a list of all the different ages what do you notice about the ages of the people as we progress throughout time? It becomes lesser and lesser, right? Until during the days of the patriarchs, 600, 400, 200, 100. And then during the days of Sarah, Jacob, Moses was 120, Manasseh 67. And it kind of tapered off when at around 70. 70, and 80. And so we can see the natural decline. Why? Why did we go from 900 all the way to about 70? What is the reason behind that? I think you know the answer, right? In the book of Genesis 3, 17 to 19, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So what is the cause behind the decline of the longevity of mankind? It is because of sin, right? The truth is, before Adam and Eve committed the sin, how long were they supposed to live for? How long? How long? Forever, Forever, right? They were supposed to live a lot longer than a 1,000 years. But because of sin, all of a sudden, Adam lived to only how? How long? 900 plus years. How long was Adam? 930, right? Because of sin. And so the, the living forever, it went down to 930 years. And then the lifespan of an individual got smaller and smaller. It kept decreasing and decreasing because God cursed the earth, including human beings. What did God decree? Because the reality, because the universe was cursed by God. For dust you are, and to dust you will, return. It's called death. Not only is it called death, it also is a process that leads to death. What is that process that leads to death? That is, The curse by which all reality, all of creation is subject to. Romans 8.21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So God decreed death and judgment. Eventually God will recreate all things, a new heavens and a new earth. And we will at last be set free from the bondage of decay. Right now, however... We are living in creation that is still subject to the bondage of decay. And so because everything decays, what do we notice about our creation, about nature? Everything alive eventually dies. You have an apple. You slice the apple in half. After a couple of minutes, it becomes what color? Brown, right? Everything goes through the process of decay. Biological things go through the process of decay, but even physical things go through a process of decay. For example, carbon-14, that's not biological. Carbon-14 molecule, it decays, and you can graph its decay rate. This is a physical reality. And this graph that you see, that nice curve, it's called an exponential decay rate. You can see this kind of graph all throughout nature, biological decay, physical decay, it follows that pattern. And so someone decided, someone very smart decided, and to look at how the graph would look if they were to look at the data of the lifespans of human beings from Adam all the way to the time when it began to taper off. And so they got all the data that I showed you plus more of all the people who lived their lifespans, completed their lifespans. And this is the graph they came up with. You'll be shocked. What does it look like? A decay rate, right? It looks exactly like the decay of carbon-14. As a matter of fact, when we look at the age from Adam up until today, mankind, you will see that decay rate. Our, on a graph, the data taken from the declining lifespan for human beings after the fall reflect an exponential decay pattern. It looks very typical to many decay patterns seen in biology, a biological decay uh, curve. And it also looks similar to uh, a radioactive decay curve. This is to be expected if a recent human history is true, Beginning with Adam and Eve, created with perfect genomes, which undergoes a process of decay. This is why the genealogy, the lifespans of the people of God from Adam all the way through the deluge of the universal flood and the decay of their lifespans, it patterns. It matches the patterns perfectly of a decay curve. What does that show you? It shows you what God decreed. Death and decay is in fact what we see even in the decline of the lifespans of individuals. This is why the declining lifespan of human beings is proof that the biblical book of Genesis, the Bible as a whole in in general, it's all inspired by our almighty God, okay? All right, there's a series of questions about Job. First one is, this puzzles me. I know we should not judge, but I learned, that Job is not from Israel. He's not Jew. He's from the land of Uz. But in the book of Job, God called him, my servant, Job. Okay. He even told Satan, don't kill him while they test him. In the former church, he taught us Israel was the chosen one, the only nation with God. They've also taught us the former church was the chosen one. We are the privileged ones. And they are the only ones that will be saved on Judgment Day. I'm just wondering why God called Job my servant Job if he doesn't belong to his chosen ones. I'm just confused. Okay. I mean, All right. So the I just want to recap the question, kind of maybe rephrase the question. How can Job be a servant of God if he did not belong to the people of Israel? Right? Because the people of Israel is the chosen nation of God. If you're outside a nation of God, you cannot be servant of God. Is that true? Is that biblical? Yeah. Right. People of God, the nation of Israel. Well, that's the people of God. And Job, did he become a servant of God? Was he considered a servant of God? Yeah. Yeah. Is he Israelite? Well, let's find out. The book of Job, chapter 1, 1 and 8. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was a blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Yeah, who was said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So sure enough, here's a man. His name is Job. He is from a land of Uz. We don't know exactly where Uz is, but if you look at Lamentations 4.21, people are saying it is from Edom. Or oh, he could be an Edomite. Whatever the case may be, he is not a Jew. It doesn't say anything that he is Israelite. Or he is Jew. There are some who say he may be Jobab. Because in the Bible, there's a mention of one of the descendants of Shem, Jobab. But I don't think that would be the case. In Genesis chapter 10, there's a mentioning of a Jobab, one of the kings of Aram. But that's probably not true. It's from the land of Uz. When you look at Uz, he's probably an Edomite. So he's not Israelite, but he's a servant. But if he is not Israelite... How can he be a servant of God when the Bible says Israel is a chosen nation of God? Easy. Job, when he was called, he didn't belong in the time of Israel. Do you know when Israel became the chosen nation of God? When did Israel become the chosen people of God? When was Israel ordained to be God's people of choice? Do you know It wasn't during the time of Job. It was after the time of Job. When did Israel become a people? In the book of Exodus 24, 3 to 8, Moses went and told the people all Yahuwah's command and all the ordinances and all the people answered together, we will do everything that Yahuwah has said. Uh, remember, Moses went to Mount Sinai and the people were gathered by the mountain, Mount Sinai. and the mountain, Yahuwah gave Moses the commands. And so now he's bringing the commands to the people of Israel. And he's telling them these are the commands of God. Verse four, Moses wrote down all Yehudah's commands. Early the next morning, he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men and they burned sacrifices to Yahweh and sacrificed some cattle as fellowship offerings. Moses took half of the blood of animals and put it in bowls. And the other half he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant in which Yahuwah's commands were written and read it aloud to the people. They said, we will obey Yahuwah and do everything that he has commanded. Then Moses took the blood in the bowls and threw it on the people. He said, this is the blood that seals the covenant which Yahuwah made with you when he gave all these commands. And so when did Israel become the people of God? When the covenant was sealed. How was the covenant sealed? The giving of commands, the reading of commands, and also the ceremony involving the blood of animals that, was, that were offered to Yahuwah God. And so this is when the nation of Israel, after they were set free from bondage in Egypt, that they became the people of God. Now, if you had if you wanted to become a servant of God, you have to belong to Israel, But before that, before the organizing, before Israel became organized as a nation, before Israel became organized as a people belonging to God, there was no Israel. It's only now that there's become a chosen people. Okay. Well, when did Job live? Was it during, after, or before this event? I believe it was before the event. Why? What's the proof? Well, we'll look at the lifespan of Job. <laughs> It's a good thing we covered that whole thing about lifespans. In Job 42, 16 and 17, Yahuwah blessed the last part of Job's life even more than he blessed the first. Job lived 140 years after this, long enough to see his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And then he died at a very great age. And so the Bible says that the last half of Job's age lasted for how long? 140 years. And so if we will double that to get his whole age, it would be 280. And so we can probably conclude, right, that his entire lifespan would not exceed 280, right? Nevertheless, it's still in the 200 plus age. Jewish tradition has it that he was given the added 140 after he turned 70. So it's 70 plus 140, 210. So 200-ish. 200 years old. And so what period of time does that coincide with? Look at the days of Shem 600, Arphaxet 400, Peleg, 239. It could have been maybe in that time period, Abraham's time period maybe, right? Sarah 120, Isaac 180, could be. So he lived during the days of the patriarch because during the days of Moses and beyond, Look at the lifespan. <laughs> not pretty high, is it? And so we can surmise that Job lived during the days of the patriarchs, the patriarchs, not during the days of Moses. So during that time, there was no Israel as a nation. What else can we say about Job? In the book of Job 1, 1, to 3, uh, there was a man named Job living in the land of Uz, who worshipped God and was faithful to him. He was a good man careful to not do anything evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. How many kids total? Ten. And owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 head of cattle, and 500 donkeys. He also had a large number of servants and was the richest man in the East. And so the Bible says in the East, he had sheep and camels and cattle and donkeys. This would coincide perfectly with the days of the patriarchs. Because during the days of the patriarchs, this is what they did, right? They tended to their flock, the camels, the cattle, the donkeys. And so that's added information about Job living during the days of the patriarchs. But how about this? This, Does this indicate that he lived during the days of Israel? In verses 4 down to 5, Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. So Job was also practicing giving or burning offerings for the purpose of purification, right? Doesn't that hint at a Mosaic practice? Because wasn't it Moses who introduced that, who codified it? Remember the different kinds of offerings for the purification of your sins? Remember the different offerings? Does this show perhaps that maybe Job was living during the days of Israel? Probably not. Because the birth offering practice was practiced even before Moses. As a matter of fact, even after or during the time of Adam, It was already being practiced in Genesis 4, 3 down to 5. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to Yahuwah. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And Yahuwah respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And so as early as the time of Cain and Abel, there was already a teaching concerning how a person can be put right with God through the offering of a flock and the fat. This is why even during the days of Noah, look what Noah did. Noah built an altar to Yahuwah. He took one of each kind of ritually clean animal and bird. Where did that come from? Where do you think that came from? That came from God, right? That came from God. God and burn them whole. That is a burnt offering. Burn them whole as a sacrifice on the altar because the burnt offering was the the whole animal was burnt whole. The order of the sacrifice pleased Yahuwah. And so during the time of Noah, way before the time of Moses, they were already giving burnt offerings to Yahuwah God. So before Israel became a nation, before Israel became the people of God, there were already people who were practicing religion, burning sacrifices to be pleasing to God. I believe Job was one of them, right? Who also was one of them. Genesis 14, 17 and 20. When Abram came back from his victory over uh, Chedor Laomer and the other kings, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in Shabbat Valley, also called King's Valley. And, who's this guy? And Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, And also a a priest of the Most High God brought bread and wine to Abram, blessed him, and said, May the Most High God who made heaven and earth bless Abram. May the Most High God who gave you victory over your enemies be praised. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the loot he had recovered. Here, this is very interesting. During the days of Israel, I mean, during the days of Abraham, long before Israel, We have Abraham, who was the servant of God, right? He was a friend of God, right? And he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a nation. And that would not take place until 400 plus years later, right? And so during this time, there was no nation yet, but there was Abraham. And God had fellowship with Abraham. He was telling him about his plan. However, during the time of Abraham, there was also another figure. What's his name? Melchizedek. Was Melchizedek of God? Yes. Yes. He was king of Salem, and he was priest of the Most High God. So what does that mean? There were people that he was leading in Salem. I don't think he's leading himself. How can you be king if you're the only one there? He was leading a group of people in Salem, right? He was leading services for them as the priest of the Most High God, and so they were practicing religion. They did not belong to Israel, right? Melchizedek was their king, and later on the Bible speaks a lot about Melchizedek, how Yahushua is being shown here in advance through Melchizedek's priestly order. He's a king and the high priest at the same time. And so we know Melchizedek is of God. Not much is mentioned about that. So there's a lot of things that the Bible's not, that the Bible is really silent on, right? And so what we can see here is even before Israel became the people of God, there were different groups who were also worshiping God. How did they learn to worship God? From their ancestors that can be traced all the way back to Adam. Adam, Noah, they all were given instructions by Yahuwah God. And it was passed on orally. It was codified only during the days of Moses sort of the practice of oral religion during that time and so I believe job was called by God he was living during a time before Israel became a nation okay but during the days of Israel you had to be in Israel to be able to serve God. however and this is a disclaimer and this is what we need to fully understand brethren because sometimes you can be so dogmatic. If you don't belong to our group, you're not going to be saved, right? We can be so dogmatic like that. But this is what the Bible says in 915. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Can we say to Yehovah God, Lord God, no, he's not a member of our group. You can't have mercy on him. You can't have compassion on him. He's not a member of our group. You can't say that. God is sovereign. We don't tell him what to do. He does whatever he wants. And we say amen to that. This is why an important principle of Scripture is this. Whatever God reveals to us, we will be responsible for. Right? Whatever is not revealed, you leave that to God. Who are we? Who are we to say this person will not be saved? Who are we to say this group will not be saved? That's not up to you. It's not up to us. That is up to God who says, "On I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Okay? Okay, let's go to the next question. Still related, Paul. With the word servant. Okay, okay is the verse of Joel, Joel chapter 2 28 32 and it says and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams your young men shall see visions and also on and also on my men servants and on my maid servants i will pour out my spirit in those days and i will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Now, in this verse, Paul, and also my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirits to them. Who are the servants? Are they like Job? not a member of the fold, but are righteous that God considers them as His servants? So the question is basically right: the sons and daughters of God are they the same as the men servants and the maid servants? Because. Apparently, the one asking the question is making a distinction between a child of God, a son and daughter of God, and also a servant of God, right? So I guess what he or she is asking is, can a person who is not a son or daughter of God, because they're not in the flock or the fold, can they be also be servants of God? Right, so the distinction is, are, are the children of God distinct from the servants of God. Well, does someone answer that? It depends. <laughs> Why? Why do I say that? For the most part, for the most part, a servant of God is also a child of God. Why do I say this? John 12 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And so the person who follows Yehusha, is he a servant? Is he also a son or daughter of God? Yeah, because he belongs to Yahushua. You belong to Yahushua, you're a son and daughter of God. you son and daughter of God, you are a servant of God. And so there's no distinction between a servant of God and a son and daughter of God. All sons and daughters of God are also servants of God, right? For example, Job, he's a son of God, but he's also a servant. Abraham, who was called a servant. Jacob, Israel, was called a servant. Moses, was called a servant six times, Caleb, a servant, David, he was a son of God, but he was called a servant of God 21 times, Isaiah, Iliatim, Zerubbabel, and look at that, the ultimate son of God, the only begotten son of God was also called what? A servant of God five times. This is why if you're a child of God, you're also what? A servant of God. But it's also possible to be a servant of God and not be a child of God. Yeah? How? Jeremiah 25. Therefore, Yahuwah Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words. He's referring to Judah, the people of God. I will summon all the peoples of the north. And my servant, what's his name? Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares Yahuwah. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants And against all the surrounding nations, I will completely destroy them and make them as an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. So that's an example of a servant, right? But not necessarily a son and daughter of God. You see, God can use any instrument he wants. For example, did he use Cyrus? Yeah. He was a pagan, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a pagan. But God used them nonetheless. And God even calls them what? My servant. Cyrus, he also calls my servant. This is why you can be a servant of God in the sense that God uses you as an instrument. So the question now is, who are those mentioned in Joel? Who are the servants of God referred to there? In Acts 2 verse 21, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dreams. And on my servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit. And so in the prophecy in Joel, where he mentions my men servants and maidservants, they are also the child or the sons and daughters of God. There's no distinction between the two. Why? Because they both receive the Spirit of God. And what does that mean? Apostle Peter applies it during the day when Pentecost came and the Spirit from heaven came down so that the assembly of Yahushua can finally do its work of witnessing for Yahusha, HaMashiach. This is why, if you notice, Apostle Peter says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so he's explaining what Joel meant. So he's telling Apostle Peter's applying that when it first was manifested in the first century, but it will continue until the end. There is a group of people. There are people who will receive the Spirit. And who are they? In Acts 2, 38, 39, we read 15 and 21. Let's read 38, 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yahusha Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all those who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will. Oh, and so the people who will receive the Spirit of God so that they can prophesy and speak the, the message of God, they are people who are baptized into Yahusha, Christ. In other words, they will profess their faith in Yahushua HaMashiach. How else do we recognize them? They were called by God. And you notice in the last part, as many as the Lord God will call This is why the work of God calling people to have fellowship with Yahushua is ongoing. He's continuing to do that work. And how can we recognize them? In the book of Acts 2, 15 and 21, if you keep reading, the Bible says in verse 20, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahuwah. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of Yahuwah shall be saved. And so when... The end comes right before the great and awesome day of Yahuwah. How can we recognize the sons and daughters of God who are also the servants of God? How can we recognize them right before the great and awesome day of Yahuwah? The Bible says they will call on His name. You see, there are different distinctions. Because when the first first fulfillment of this was when the tongues rested on the heads of the individuals. And they began to speak in tongues. Remember that? And so you have different manifestations of the work of the spirit. But in the end, right before the day of Yahuwah, one of the manifestations is this name of Yahuwah that will be restored and will be proclaimed as one of the signs of this group who are the servants and also the children of God. Okay. All right. Let's go to number three. Book of Job. If Satan, if Satan was cast down in hell... Does he still talk to God? Is the book of Job a parable or an actual event that happened? Okay, good question. So let's go to the first one. If Satan was cast down in hell, does he still talk to God? Well, if he was cast down in hell, I don't think he'll be able to talk to God anymore, right? Well, he, in fact, had a conversation with God. For example, in Job 167, one day the angels came to present themselves before Yahuwah. And Satan also came with them. And so apparently... Yahuwah God has council meetings, perhaps, something like that, because the Bible says the angels, the sons of God, came to present themselves before Yahuwah. They presented what they were doing. They were kind of reporting to Yahuwah. This is what we did, including Satan. That's so why if you read Job chapter one, it mentions Satan going from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. Right. He's looking for people. <laughs> That's when Yahuwah says, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> so Yahuwah kind of highlighted Job because he's so pleased with Job <laughs> because he was a, a man who, was, who had a, a reverent fear of him. He was an upright man, blameless man. So Yahuwah was proud of Job. And so he told Satan, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> right. And so we know Satan Every so often, would have an audience with God. He could communicate with God. He can go to heaven and have a conversation with God. Apparently, through a council, there, there was a meeting of angels, and he was there. And what does Satan do when he goes from going go when he goes back and forth, roaming the earth? What does he do in Revelation twelve ten? And I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, "It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God." And the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. That's what he does. He accuses people. He accuses the people of God. But eventually, the Bible says he is thrown down to earth. You see, God has prepared a place for the devil. What is that place? Matthew 25, 41. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you curse once, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And so what is that prepared place for Satan, for the devil and his demons? It is eternal fire, what we call hell, right? So Satan is not yet in hell. During the time of Job, he certainly was not yet in hell. And he could still have an audience with God in his court. But time will come when he will be cast from heaven to the earth. He's he's, uh, the one who is even called by Apostle Paul as the quote-unquote God of this age, right? Because he influences the entire world. But time will come when he will be cast into the lake of fire. That time has not yet come. When will that be? Revelation 20, 7 and 10. When a thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle. A mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. And the devil who had this who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So when will the devil be cast to quote-unquote hell or the lake of fire? After he is released from prison, after the thousand-year millennium reign of Yahushaar. King. So it's only after that. Right now, the devil is not yet been cast into hell. Okay. All right. Next question is the book of Job, a parable or an actual event that happened. I believe it's an actual event that happened. Why? James 5.11, we give honor. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end for the Lord is full of tenderness and Mercy. Here, James mentions Job, and when he speaks of Job, he speaks of him as a historical, actual man who was a man of great endurance and who was blessed after he endured, right? And so I believe that he was an actual living person. There was a historical Job. It wasn't just allegory. It wasn't metaphorical. There was an actual person named Job. And his life story was depicted in the book of Job. And what further proves this in the book of Ezekiel 14, 12 to 14? Then this message came to me from Yahuwah, son of man. Suppose the people of the country were to sin against me. And I lifted my fist to crush them, cutting off their food supply. And sending a famine to destroy both people and animals. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there. The righteousness would save no one but themselves, says Sovereign Yahuwah. And so the Bible is speaking about a literal judgment of God, right? God is speaking about his people Israel. Because of the rebellion, God has decreed that they're going to be captives. uh, They will be given to captivity. And so God has judged them. And then God says, this message from Yahuwah, you know, when I have made my decision to judge them, even if, Noah... Daniel and Job were there, their righteousness would save no one but themselves, says Sovereign Yahuwah. And so he mentions Noah, Daniel, and Job. And so in the same way Noah was an actual person and Daniel was an actual person, Job was also an actual person. So it was not a parable. It was an allegory. It was historical. There was a historical Job. There was really a man named Job, and his life was depicted in the book of Job. Okay. Number four, they say, obey and never complain. But in the book of Job 7-Eleven says, Therefore I will not keep silent, I will speak out in anguish of my in anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. His servant Job complained. But God still listened patiently. And he understood Job, even though Job said some things and questioned God. Okay, let's go ahead and take a look at that quite some detail because there's something we need to understand about this whole thing. In the book of Job 7, let's look at 11, and let's continue all the way to 15. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So we know what happened to Job, right? What happened to Job, if you still remember? He lost a lot of things, he lost all 10 of his children, his servants were killed, right? His his livestock were butchered. He basically had nothing left, and then he had the the boils. And then even his relatives kind of did not want to spend time with him. He lost all of his relatives, not just uh, just his wife, but all of his relatives did not want to see him because they were afraid they might get cursed too, (laughs) right? Because, oh, you were cursed, Joe, so they didn't want to touch him. They want to be near him. If you will look at the whole life story of Job, oh, man, he suffered a lot. He lost everything. His social life and his wife was bitter against him too, right? So he, he you can feel for him, can't you? The anguish that he's feeling. Now, you can understand Job, right? What he's dealing with is something that no one naturally experiences. Nobody goes through suffering like this. This is different, right? Right? And so we can we can kind of sympathize with Job. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under guard? When I think my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. So he's basically complaining to Yahuwah, even when I go to sleep, I'm being tormented because of my nightmares, right? So he can't find peace at all. He's alive. When he's awake, there's no peace. When he's about to sleep, there's no peace. When he's sleeping, he's having nightmares. So you can kind of feel bad for him, right? And so what does he say? (laughs) It gets worse. 10, 3 to 9, does it please you to oppress me? So now he's blaming God and he's oppressing him. To spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are you da- are your days like those of mortal or your years like those of a man? That you must search out my faults and probe after my sin? Though you know that I am not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand, your hand shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you mold me like clay. Will you now turn... T- me to dust again and so this is what he's feeling he's expressing his emotions right he's being authentic with God and so in a way he is blaming God right he's kind of complaining against God and so God listens to his complaint for a while and eventually God appears to Job you know what Job, you know what God said to Job what did Yahuwah say to him let's jump all the way to Job 38 then Yahuwah answered Job out of the storm he said who is this That darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. And so when Joe had all these questions that he wanted to ask God. And when God finally showed up. Yahuwah God said to him, okay, I want to ask you a question. And you have to answer me. Where were you? When you laid the earth's foundation, what was God trying to get him to understand? That there are things that he cannot understand because he's a creature and God is the creator. <laughs> right? And so he asked him, okay, where were you when they laid when he laid the earth's foundation? What else did God say to him? 42 to 8, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And Job answered, Yahuwah, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. Then Yahuwah spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And so Job is asking God, I mean, God, Yahuwah God is asking Job, okay, answer me. And Job could not reply and says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? See, brethren, there's something we have to understand. There are things that are beyond our comprehension. There are things that only God can understand. This is why he doesn't bother to explain us the minute details of what, what we have to go through. This is the mystery of suffering because the most asked question in religious circles is this. Why do bad things happen to bad or why do good? Why do bad things happen to good people, right? Isn't that like the most asked question in religion, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? When you really think about it, are there really good people? <laughs> and what does it mean? By bad thing. You see, there are things that we do not completely understand. And the book of Job perfectly communicates to us that we, the creature, cannot possibly understand the creator who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. This is why we have no right and authority to question our Maker. When Job realized that, what did he say? What did he say? Then Job replied to Yahuwah, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this obscure? Who is it that obscure my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears has heard a few, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, before Job saw God, before Yahuwah appeared to him, manifested himself in some form, because Job seen him, right? Some, some kind of form, a manifestation of this glory of some kind. Before that, he had all these questions. But when Yahuwah appeared, he had nothing to ask. He just remained silent. And he felt so bad. In verse 6, he despised himself and repented in dust and ashes. See, brethren, it doesn't really matter now what Yahuwah will say to Job. Let's say, for example, Yahuwah is going to explain everything that's happening to Job. That doesn't mean anything. You know why? Because he was overwhelmed by the presence of who. See, when you are in the midst, when you are in the presence of Yahuwah God, explanations don't matter. The presence of God overpowers any explanatory power. This is why when we go through difficult times, the best thing to do is to be in the presence of Yahuwah God. doesn't matter what the explanations are. It's not important because we won't understand anyways. What is important is to be in the presence of Yahuwah our God. And when Job was in the presence of Yahuwah God, he could not say anything anymore. And he dropped to his knees and he said, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Did Yahuwah God forgive him? What do you think? Yes. Yeah. In fact, this is what he this is what Yahuwah God did for Job. In Job 42, 12 to 17, so Yahuwah blessed Job in the second half of his life, even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, the second Keziah, the third Karen Haput. In all the land, no women were as lovely as the daughters of Job. And their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. And he died an old man who had lived a long, full life. He had a happy ending. Do you think he had a happy ending? Yeah, he had a very happy ending. A very happy ending. As a matter of fact, the Bible says now he had... 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. What do you notice about those numbers? Double. Double. He lost 7,000 sheep. He now has 14,000. He lost ca- 3,000 camels. He now has 6,000. He lost 500 oxen. He now has 500. He lost 500 donkeys. He now has 1,000. Doubled. And here's the beautiful part. How many sons and daughters did Yehovah God give to him? 10. How many did he lose? 10. Why was it not doubled? Because he hasn't really lost his other 10 children. They will see each other again where? In the holy city. He's telling Job, I'm giving you 10 more kids. Your other 10 kids, you'll see them in heaven. You haven't lost them. And so he still has 20. Twice doubled, right? And he blessed him with a long life. But the best part, Yahuwah God honored Job. He had his book in the Bible, right? And he even highlighted him. The three people that he mentioned, noah daniel and who was it Job. he was blessed yes he went through a lot but he was blessed yes he complained yes he may have questioned god but god did not punish him for that god instead he understood him you know why i want to go back to exodus 34 5 to 6 because Yahuwah god is explaining something to moses then Yahuwah came down in the cloud and stood there with him with moses and he proclaimed his name, Yahuwah. And so he is proclaiming the name Yahuwah to Moses. No, Moses already knows his name, Yahuwah, right? In Exodus 3.15. Now he wants Moses to attach this to his name. That's why he says, Yahuwah, I proclaim my name, Yahuwah. And this is what he wants Moses to attach to his, to his name, Yahuwah. What is that? If We keep reading And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahuwah, Yahuwah, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is why Job, despite the fact he became, he complained and he went on a tantrum. (laughs) We can say he went on a tantrum. Yahuwah God, bless him nonetheless. Truth of the matter is, it's not just Job who showed tantrums, right? Elijah, didn't he also complain to God? Moses, Abraham, David, they also complained to God. But God still blessed them and used them. However, something we need to keep in mind always, brethren, is this. Yahuwah's patience with the tantrums of his people does not mean his approval. Okay? Yes, we need to be honest with our emotions and affections. And God can take it when sometimes we let our emotions get out of hand. God can take it. Do not ever think that if something blurts out, we say something that we regret later on, that God will hate us. No. God still loved Job. God still loved David. God still loved Abraham and Moses. Why? Because Yahuwah is a God of compassion, slow to anger, and filled with love. And so if we're going through something difficult, what should we do? Instead of complaining, what should we do? The final passage of our studies today, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves. Humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares. He cares for you. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Just ask Job. Just ask Elijah. Just ask David. Just ask Moses. Brethren, all the people of God in the past worth studying, they all went through difficulties in life adversities in life. We too will go through the same. And so when we're going through that, let's humble ourselves. How do we humble ourselves? Do not complain, but cast your anxiety to Yehovah God and then wait for him to act because in due time, what will he do? He will lift us up. Why? So that he can restore us, make us strong, firm, and steadfast. Brethren, let us always keep that principle. Yahuwah God is merciful, compassionate. When we sometimes have a tantrum, when we sometimes complain against Him, He'll understand. But let's do our best to humble ourselves before Him and to say to Him, Father, if it's possible, may this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but your will be done. Boy, when Yehovah God hears those words from us, I can only imagine his face beaming with happiness to hear that from us. Because we are his sons and daughters. And to hear that from us, to say to him, just like what his son said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That is what is God. That that is what God is looking for. That's what He wants to hear from us, because when we do that, then Yahuwah God can cause all these things to work together for our good, just like He did with Job, because Job had a happy ending. But the kind of ending that he would that he had would not have been possible if he did not go through that adversity and testing. And so, brethren, let us let God cause everything to work together in our life. Let God complete what he has begun in us so that we, too, can have that ending that God wants us to have, filled with joy and happiness as he restores us, makes us strong, firm, and steadfast. Let us stand, brethren, and we shall pray. Almighty and everlasting Father. Yes, Father. Yahuwah, our God. Amen. Thank you for proclaiming your name. Yes, Father. We know that name. Yes. You want attached to it. Yes, Father. Your nature of being compassionate. Yes, Father. Merciful, loving, and faithful. Amen. Thank you, Father, for being our God. Yes. Thank you. For considering our prayers when we go through difficult times. There are times when we complain. There are even times perhaps when we doubted your goodness. Maybe some of us entertain the thought that you no longer love your people. But Father, we know that you are always at work and we may not always understand. Yes. What you are up to in our life. Amen. Other what we know is this. If we are to trust you yes. and to wait for you, good things will happen. Yes, And so no matter what, we place our complete hope in your hands. Look upon your people now. Yes. Thank you so much yes. for your long suffering. Yes, If it were not for your compassion. We would not be here today. But, Father, you have blessed us in so many ways. And so we are supremely confident you will continue to bless us and strengthen each one of us. Bless your people throughout the world. Help us, Father, to see your work. Invite us to participate in it. It is indeed great honor on our part. To partake of that work, no matter how small or how great it may be. If it's from you we want it, help us to deny ourselves. To be your servants always. To be your followers loving Abba. Yahushua our King. We surrender ourselves to you. May your mind be in our mind. May we slowly yet surely become more and more like you, our yes, King. Oh Lord. Help us to be pleasing to you. Yes, oh Lord. May you help us that we can be instruments of yours yes, in declaring your goodness to all. Amen. Father, heal those who are sick among us. Yes, Continue Father. to provide for our needs as well. Yes, Pay attention, please, to our prayers, yes, especially Father. when we need you the most. Yes, Comfort Father. us, oh God, yes, Father. and help us to feel your restoration Yes. At work in our life. Amen. Father, please forgive all our sins. Yes, Be with us always in our walk. Yes, For we Father. ask and beg everything, loving Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior. Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen. Okay, brothers and sisters, if you have any questions, you can submit your questions to info at assemblyofyahushua.org. And we do have many more questions That we're going to be discussing uh, next week. Uh, That is all, brothers and sisters. May Yehovah God bless all of us.